Okay. What the devilish fish? A lost episode? From 2020? Should I tell someone? Or just leave it here? Quite a conundrum. Greetings, Exalted Ones. My name is Luke Skywalker, Jedi Knight and friend of Captain Solo. I seek an audience with your greatness to bargain for Solo's life. This is Rish Outfield, and uh, you're listening to the Rish Outcast. And I didn't have anything to prepare. I, I have run out of episodes, which isn't entirely true. I, I found, I discovered the sound card, the second one that I had that I lost in February of 2019. I found it this week, and it has a couple of old, unheard Rish Outcasts on it. And uh, I could grab one of those and edit it and put it out. No one would be the wiser. But as far as new content goes, I don't really have any. So I, I'm in the car, I'm driving, and I thought I would do an episode. And the story I've chosen to present today on here is Never Let Him Go. And Never Let Him Go is from the Dead and Breakfast series. It follows the night clerk touching the other side, the old man and me, fatherless child. I think those are the ones that precede this. So this story is, it's a bit tangential to the rest of the narrative. It is about Mason Bradley and Natalie Whitmore to a lesser extent. And it was a continuation of what I had set up in the very first story, Night Clerk, with the owner of the bed and breakfast, Mrs. Bice, telling Natalie that she was going to fire Mason. And it was something magical for me when I wrote that and ended the story with that unresolved because I had already started a second story, Touching the Other Side, which I hadn't finished, when I wrote Night Clerk. And then knowing that there was another story out there, it gave me the push to leave things unresolved and say, well, I'll follow that up when I go back to Touching the Other Side. And I had such a good time writing Night Clerk that in the back of my mind, it was like, okay, this is fun. Maybe I'm going to write another one after I'm done with Touching the Other Side. And maybe I'll write another one after that. And I did. So I hope that it's still enjoyable. And I hope that people like the Dead and Breakfast series because of the characters and my writing. And not just a sort of a fantasy island, love boat, each week another ghost knocks on the door format. Although I do need to sit down and write a couple more stories that are just that, that are just episodic, somebody new checks in, and this is what they find. Hey, Rish Outfield from the future here. This is me in 2023, making this already long episode even longer. And that's, that's kind of the point. This was an extremely long episode. Not sure if you are a supporter of mine on Patreon, 
on, on Patreon. But even if you aren't, I have been putting polls up over there on my Patreon page, which is uh, patreon.com forward slash Richoutfield. And one of the polls that I asked, I mentioned that how long this episode was getting. And I said, should I put out a nearly two hour long episode or should I split it into two? Because, well, we used to get the odd complaint over in the Doonstief days about the length of our episodes, but it was almost always about the banter part, not the story, because people, other podcasts are not insane. They don't run 45 minute long stories or longer on their shows. We, we were aware of this early, early on. In fact, it's something that uh, my partner, I didn't say his name because I don't want to have to find another drop. I just want this to be out there as fast as, as possible. But my partner thought, well, hey, we could, there's a void in the market for podcasts that run novellas or, or even novelettes. But uh, it was exhausting and draining and we didn't see a huge uptick in donations or anything like that when we did that. Uh, that, that. That's a subject for another day. In fact, remind me to have my ex-partner on my show and we'll do like a deconstruction of the Doonstief. We'll talk about like the lessons that we learned and the things that we would do differently if we were doing it today. Remind me to do that. Anyhow, I ran this poll on patreon.com and I opened the poll up for everybody. So, and I'll try and do that with every single poll that I run on there so that even if you don't support me because you, you're not able to, not because you don't want to, uh, if you don't support me because you don't want to, then why are you listening? But if you don't support me because you're not able to, you can always go over there and still vote in the polls. And I'm gonna try and do them more often because it seems like they're fun. Let me put a pin in that and come back to it later. The point I was trying to make is I asked people, should I split it up or should I run just a massive episode? And it was almost entirely split down the middle, the result. Right now, it's 55 to 45%. But I feel like half the people were like, yeah, bring on a giant overstuffed episode. And the other half were like, bring on two giant overstuffed episodes. So the story itself is long. And because of that, uh, just yesterday I edited the whole thing together and I put it into one file and I was surprised how long it was. And so I have decided to split it and I hope that you understand, but I will try and get the two halves out relatively close to one another. And um, that should be easy because I had almost finished the episode entirely uh, yesterday. So uh, let me continue with uh, the, <laughs> the, the, the presentation of the first half of Never Let Him Go. Never Let Him Go. Written and narrated by Rish Outfield. Constance Bice was waiting for Mason when he got to the bed and breakfast. Thank goodness he had arrived on time. 
although he had gotten there on time every single shift for the last few months. He looked from Mrs. Bice, who was unboxing booklets of Noble Oak stationery, to Errol, who was the day clerk. "'How's it going?' he asked him. "'Pretty all right. You know those high school kids that stayed here after prom back in May? Apparently one of them has a father that always checks their credit card bill.' Mason didn't grin as he clocked in on the computer. He had, of course, been working that night and had seen the tuxes and prom gowns. Adults didn't dress that way. Was he very upset? Errol sucked in his cheeks. What do you think? Dang. He hoped it was worth it for that kid. Although, Mason remembered how envious he'd been, watching them hurry excitedly to their rooms, barely suppressing giggles. He would have considered it worth it, at their age even if he ended up grounded until he was as old as he was now, in his twenties. Okay, clocked in, he said. He stepped away from the computer so Errol could clock himself out. But he didn't. I, er, have to stay an extra hour or so, Errol said quietly. So quietly that Mason turned to see if Mrs. Bice was still at her task. She wasn't. She was standing by the employee lounge, and she was looking at Mason. "'Would you step in here for a moment?' she asked. And it was just about as ominous as anything Hannibal Lecter or Darth Vader ever said in a movie. He went into the break room, and Bice followed him. She took a moment to look around, really scrutinizing the place, probably checking to see if anything had been left out by one of her employees. Finally, she turned to give him her complete attention, easing the suspense at last. Mason, you didn't clock out on Tuesday morning. I didn't? I came in, and you were still on the clock. I looked for you, but you had gone home at seven. He had to admit he was relieved that it was such a small matter. Yeah, I would have. Sorry. Let's sit down for a moment the old lady said, and Mason wondered if he should apologize again. He knew Connie wouldn't pay him for when he wasn't there, but she couldn't have thought he had done it on purpose, right? The time clock must have slipped my mind, he said. Sometimes it's hard to remember things after an all-nighter. You told me you had no problem working overnights. Well, I don't. Should he apologize again? Is that what she wanted? It won't happen again, he said, thinking he could put a post-it on his steering wheel that said, Did you clock out, or something. Unless he forgot about that, too. His boss steepled her fingers, not unlike Mr. Burns might on The Simpsons. Well, Mason, how do you feel things are going? Going? Fine. He nodded. Good. He stopped nodding. Going with what? She scowled. Well, she was already scowling, but it became more pronounced. With your job. Oh, great. No complaints. Hmm. He didn't know what that hmm meant. Was this just a spur-of-the-moment chat, or was this... Wait a sec. 
The guy at the desk had been asked to stay an hour late today, presumably so the hotel's owner could chew Mason out for a while. Well, at least Natalie hadn't been asked to come in and cover his shift. This little talk might be bad, but that would be infinitely worse. But at the thought of Natalie, he cheered right up. She did that to him, even when she wasn't nearby, reminding him that there was joy and wonder outside of these walls. Until he met Nat Whitmore, he'd felt certain that Noble Oaks was the only place magic might be possible. But then he'd seen that lovely smile and felt his spirit soar, and something inside him shifted. Though, hey, the jury was still out for everywhere else. Constance Bice stared at him. He wondered if she was reading his expressions. If so, she must have noticed his mood had improved. A couple more days until the second, she said, and could only be referring to July the second. That's right, he said, both nodding and smiling. Are you excited? She pursed her lips. It's a complicated evening. So many things can go wrong. He said nothing. He'd seen people both terrified and thrilled by that night, heard people's horror stories, tales of confession, and that nice Mrs. Gray who got a visit from her husband every time she came here. Things could go right, too. I got a letter, Bice said, then popped her dentures once. Maybe that was actually her conscience making that sound. The staff got a letter, rather. It mentioned you. Mason did not react. A letter would normally be a bad thing, since people rarely wrote unless they were upset. But this was not a normal place. There was a lady from Oregon last year, Bice said, clicking the denture back into place. The one with the baby. The dead baby? Mason thought. That poor lady's reaction had surprised him, choosing not to focus on her loss so much as her brief reunion with her dead child. Uh-huh. She mentioned how supportive Mr. Mason had been, used the word Christian. Maybe that was supposed to be irony, since Mason was not a praying man. She was nice, he said, to say something. He was frankly surprised Mrs. Bice knew about the incident. She tended to clear out of the place hours before sundown, and often came in late the next morning, as if she was giving the ghosts a wide berth. I'm sure. The owner changed subjects. Have you told anyone about the second? Uh-oh. What had she heard? Kayla from housekeeping had approached Mason on Monday, wanting to know who had told Natalie Whitmore about the ghosts. Apparently the other night clerk had been asking the staff about it. No, he lied. That's as it should be. Natalie has been nosing around about it, so someone must have filled her in about the subject. I hardly ever see Natalie, Mason said. He had two shifts a week that overlapped with hers and that was lamentable. Borderline heartbreaking. For him, anyway. Well, I'll tell her everything she needs to know the next time I speak with her, Mrs. Bice said, 
You are not to discuss it with anyone, except on the day. Do you understand? Yeah, he said. He had told his best friend, many months back, and hadn't been believed. It might even be that Archie wasn't his best friend anymore because of that. Are you aware that Miss Whitmore speaks Spanish? Bice asked, apropos of... something? Natalie. Uh, yeah. She talks to the housekeeping ladies. Saw her speak it on the phone one time. He didn't add that it was the sexiest thing he'd ever seen. It is extraordinarily useful, Mason. What is? The phone? It hadn't been a joke, but she snorted anyway. Ha! The Spanish language. You don't speak it, am I correct? Well, I, I took it in junior high. I guess both eighth and ninth grades, but you know how those classes... By her face, she didn't care for the extra details. No, I don't speak it. I think it would be helpful if all our desk clerks spoke Spanish, Mrs. Bice said. Mason didn't have a response to that. When the twins worked here, we had lots of bilingual desk staff, she said. She had loved the twins, Mason recalled, in a way that was almost unsettling. Of course, blondes get all the attention. A shame they're gone. He didn't tell her that Graham and Trudy had spoken English and French, and he'd had exactly one French-speaking customer in the year and a half he'd worked there. Yeah. I'm worried that you aren't taking this job as seriously as you could be, Mrs. Bice said. For a moment there, he wondered if she was firing him. But no, then Natalie would be there to take his shift, instead of Errol staying late. Even so, it was an awful thing to hear. I'm never late any more. If you check, I have checked, she said. And boy, he didn't doubt it. In that you have improved. But your sense of humor, your mad grin, your rather boisterous personality have been a problem lately. Mad grin? Yeah, because I'm happier than I've ever been, he thought, but didn't say. I can work on that. I hope that you do, Mason, Mrs. Bice said, and the way she said his name was not at all warm, if she was even capable of warmth. If it hadn't been for this woman's letter... She left the rest unspoken. Mason wondered what the letter had said. The mother had been very moved by her experience, and he had been more than happy to listen. She'd hugged him as she'd checked out a couple of days later, but that was not uncommon, considering. I think that's all I need say, the old woman declared. But she seemed to expect some kind of reply, whether it was appreciation or groveling or... Mid-year resolutions. Mason thought of one of the Star Wars movies, where Vader threatens an Imperial big shot, and he snaps too, saying, We will double our efforts! And considered saying the same. I appreciate you telling me, he lied. She liked that, or seemed to. You are not the same young man I hired, 
Mrs. Bice commented. No, I was miserable then, he thought. Now, the worst I ever get is melancholy. He didn't say anything along those lines, but he liked himself a hell of a lot more now than when she'd first hired him. And that was something. You think about that, Mr. Bradley, she told him, and tell Errol he can clock out now. All right, Mason said. After Mrs. Bice had gone home, and he had checked the parking lot to make sure of it, he fished out his cell phone, which was not allowed at work, though everybody did it, and texted Natalie Whitmore for the first time. He'd had her telephone number since the first week she'd worked there. Their numbers were posted in the computers, in case somebody needed a shift covered, but he had never texted her, much less called her. This is Mason, he wrote, at work. Could you help me with something? ¿Y qué es esto? Natalie asked him the next Friday shift they shared, which was after the 4th of July. She pointed to her slightly bedraggled, yet so gloriously dark hair. Tus pelos, Mason said hesitantly. Tu pelo, she corrected. Say it again. Esta es tu pelo, Mason said, which was pretty spot on for that is your hair. She pointed to her shirt. ¿Qué es esto? He squinted, extraordinarily tempted to tell her he didn't know the word for boobs. Esto es tu ropa, he semi-guessed. Camisa she corrected. Ropa means clothes. Hadn't that been technically right, then? But he said, Esta es tu camisa, and they continued the lesson. He didn't know why. She had never told him that his boss was planning to fire him. But Natalie had not been unwilling to help him with Spanish. She spoke it, what seemed to him, anyway, as fluently as somebody in a telenovela but she had confided that she wasn't perfect, but only confident. He thought she was both confident and perfect, but didn't quite dare tell her that. Natalie had always kept her distance from him, since that first time they'd met and she'd looked at him funny, like she could read minds or something. Sure, he'd found her attractive on the first day, but he'd frankly thought she was too skinny and that her nose was way too upturned to be truly beautiful. It was barely a week or two later that he'd started thinking of her as the most beautiful girl he'd ever seen, comparing singers and actresses and supermodels to her, and finding them lacking. She had never, ever, given him any reason to think she was interested, and spoke to him more coldly, he thought, than she did her other co-workers, especially the women. Mason suspected it was a defense mechanism something she did to keep guys at a distance, knowing that they were attracted to her and not wanting to lead them on. It hadn't mattered to Mason. I mean, sure, it sucked that she wasn't into him, but he was absolutely fine just to work with her, see her a few hours every week, smell her hair as she walked by, and try, when he could think of something non-idiotic to say to her, which was sometimes frankly impossible, to make her laugh. But then, she had seen a ghost, 
on the night of the 2nd of July. Of course, everyone saw a ghost on that night, if they stayed there. But she hadn't been a guest, and had so desperately, the only time that word could ever apply to Natalie Whitmore, wanted to see one, which was extremely unlikely if you weren't in the right place at the right time. She had, apparently, been just there, and saw somebody, a male one was all she had said, and it had made a big difference on her as well. A year before, Mason's eyes had been opened, knowing there was an afterlife, and rules and such. He wasn't 100% sure how it worked, only that it did. And Natalie, too, had changed, if only to allow childlike wonder into her life again. And after that night, she had been eager to help him learn Spanish. It was the best of possible worlds, that he would impress his boss by learning another language, and at the same time get to spend so many hours with his dream girl. Okay, the best of possible worlds was one where he got to spend hours with Natalie Whitmore, and then they went home in the same car. But that wasn't going to happen, he was sure. She seemed to like him a little bit now, when she hadn't before, but it was the like of a friendly co-worker, a familiar school chum, and he would take what he could get. He was in love, and it was both soul-crushing and wonderful. Mason had remembered very little of his Spanish from school. Every once in a while they'd go over something that seemed familiar, and he remembered the diagram Natalie drew on the whiteboard as she made him go over conjugating the verbs, as she called it. He'd very nearly made a conjugal visits joke a couple of times, and hadn't quite dared. He had dared, on their third weekend shift together after starting, ask her just why she was helping him with all this. Something to do, she said, which was what the spy books called an evasion. Natalie had a pimple today, he noticed, right beside her upper lip. She hadn't covered it with makeup, which meant one of two things. She didn't know it was there, or she knew it, but just plain didn't care. In Mason's mind, either of these possibilities was astounding. Imagine the confidence to know a pink zit on your face wasn't going to make you a share less appealing. It beggared all comprehension. No, really, he said, trying to remember how you told someone to answer in Espanol. Requestar. Respuesta, she corrected, then said, Maybe I like a challenge. That might have been closer to the truth, but she still did something with those blue eyes of hers that made him think there was more to it, and that she'd consider him a challenge said what? She'd probably never found men a challenge before, so he must be particularly dumb. The other co-workers, especially the housekeeping staff, were always asking Natalie about the dates she went on, or the clubs she went dancing at, or if she'd met anybody special. Mason always wanted to be elsewhere when this subject came up. One of these days, she wouldn't say, Oh, nothing much, or We had a good time, but it's not serious. And then, how would he feel? Luckily, he only had to be around these kinds of questions on Fridays and Saturdays. And guess which two days were the ones he looked forward to? 
Mrs. Bice, meanwhile, had been having a very difficult time in the hiring department. She'd had two interviews lined up, and both had flaked on her. The second time it had happened, she'd had her phone with her, and angry to have been sitting in the cafe alone for twenty minutes, had called the number on the resume in front of her, only to hear from her husband that she'd gone to the interview, and the interviewer had never shown up. I'm sitting right here, Bice said to him. The interview was yesterday, I think, he said. When Bice started to argue, he said, It's right here on the calendar. Cherie's Café, Main Street, Miss Bike, 3 p.m., Wednesday. The old woman had been about to correct the man on her name, but just shook her head and hung up. If the potential hire had gone there the day before and found no one, why hadn't she called to ask about it? The third prospective replacement for Mason was a tall, balding black man who'd moved to Idaho from Washington. He didn't speak any Spanish, but that really wasn't an issue. Mrs. Bice was about to leave the bed and breakfast to go to the interview. This one was going to be in the park, since she'd already met the man at the grocery store when she was buying cat food. When Errol, the day clerk, told her the guy had called to tell her he couldn't make it. Did he give a reason? Not that I could tell. It was a pretty bad connection. She considered giving him a call to reschedule, but he had her email and her telephone number. If he wanted the job badly enough, he could let her know. Of course, had she bothered to call, she'd have discovered that he had gotten a call from the bed and breakfast. The number and location was still in his call history, telling him that the position had already been filled. That, too, had been a pretty bad connection. The fourth time she had been trying to line up an interview. There was some kind of interference on the line. She redialed, and though she could hear the lady's voice, there was crackling static throughout. She hung up the office phone and tried her cell phone. The interference was there, too, almost like whispering voices. It was really quite off-putting. So it had to be on the receiving end. "'Are you hearing me?' she asked, barely able to tolerate it. "'I hear you fine,' said the lady. "'Who are you trying to reach?' The static continued, even sounding a little like, "'Bice, bice, bice, bice,' for a moment there. No way was she going to try to have a conversation with that in the background. "'I'm sorry. I'm mistaken,' she said, and hung up. Mason had just clocked in for his shift and was in the break room. Employee lounge is what his boss referred to it as, putting a pint of sherbet in the freezer for later, when he felt a presence behind him. He had, at this point, encountered more than one ghost at Noble Oaks, a couple of them even comforting presences, but he hadn't gotten used to it. His body tensed, and he slowly turned to face it, expecting to see something terrifying. And he was right, except that it was Constance By standing there, not a ghost. His boss was staring daggers at him, and he glanced down out of habit to see if he wasn't wearing a button-up shirt or if his fly was down. He'd been taken to task for both those things in the past. You, uh, sort of scared me there, he said, pasting on a smile he did not feel. The wicked flee where no man pursueth, Mr. Bradley, 
Bice said, and then smirked, proud of her cleverness. He squinted, trying to place the quote. He was pretty sure it wasn't from the Godfather. But the righteous are bold as lions, she finished. Ah, good one, he said, figuring it was a Bible verse. Unable to help himself, he said, and you will know my name is the Lord when I lay my vengeance upon you. Whatever he was supposed to have said, it was not that. Any idea what time it is? She asked him, and this, too, felt like a trap. About 7.02? He guessed, though it had been before seven when he clocked himself in. He knew that much. She glanced at the clock on the wall, eager to tell him how late it truly was, but it was actually still 6.58. I'm not sure I like your attitude, Mr. Bradley, she said, but he suspected that there was no answer he could have given that would have pleased her. He had clocked in early, and that was somehow just as bad as clocking in late. I'm sorry, he said, wondering if he should claim it wasn't intentional, or he was just trying his best, or not say anything at all. The old woman opened her mouth, about to say something, what Mason would never know, but it wasn't good. And then a car began honking outside. There was a door and a single window to the parking lot in the employee lounge, and Mrs. Bice's gaze shot toward them, in an almost snake-like way. Mason ignored it, still waiting to see what she was going to tell him. Bice stood up. Her frown deepened. That's my car. Only now did Mason crane his neck around to see what she was talking about. Indeed, Mrs. Bice's big Chrysler LeBaron was flashing its lights and tooting its horn, as the alarm blared loudly and shrilly. It was more like a boat than a car, and probably got six miles to the gallon, but it fit Constance Bice like a cream-colored glove. She glanced at him with irritation. We'll continue this discussion on some other occasion, Mason. Go get to work and make the best of your time. Yes, ma'am, he said, and walked away, thinking, the time you have left is what she means. His boss stalked out the door to find out what was the matter with her car. Nothing was the matter with it, she would find but Mason Bradley obviously had an ally in his corner. Lolly McDaniel was working the reception desk when the phone call came that would make all the difference at Noble Oaks, at least for the next couple of years. She picked up, and at first could hear no one on the other end, but before she hung up, it came through, a soft voice through a shaky connection. My dear, please don't ring off. I'm just having some trouble speaking. I apologize, sir. How can I help you? I wonder if the owner, Miss Bice, is in. I'm not sure, she said, as she had been prompted to do. I can give her a message and have her get back to you if you'd like to. The man's voice was weak, but still carried authority as though he were used to addressing big groups of people. Lucy, if you could connect me to Miss Bice, I'd really appreciate it. She will as well. 
Lolly didn't correct him about her name. People were always getting it wrong. If I could get your name, please? This is Ingmar Sargent. I stayed at your establishment this past summer. Sergeant? Like the rank? The rank, yes. Or the pepper. Lolly didn't make the connection. And this is regarding... Lucille, I'll be frank. I'm dying. Despite my carefree nature, time is of the essence. If you could connect me with Miss Bice, I can continue meeting with relatives, doctors, and estate lawyers. She didn't know if he was joking or not, but she apologized again and asked for permission to put him on hold. Yes, but not too long, or you'll have to speak with the next of kin. When Lolly knocked on Mrs. Bice's door, she was surprised to hear one of the coarser swear words of the modern lexicon from the office. What is it? the old woman practically snarled. Lolly opened the door, almost expecting her boss to throw something at her. Sorry to bother you, but there's a Mr. Sergeant on the phone. He said he needs to speak to you. Take a mess. He, he said he's dying, Lolly added, putting up her hand. Bice's frown deepened, but not so much from annoyance as from deep thought. All right, she said, glancing over at the phone. Line one? Yes, ma'am. Go cover the desk, please, Bice said, as though Lolly had been standing there way too long. She left her alone, closing the door behind her. The old woman pressed the button on line one and discovered no one was there. It was line two that was blinking. She pressed it and paused very briefly before saying, Yes, this is Mrs. Bice. Hello there. I'll not take up much of your time. My name is Sergeant, and I stayed with you this past July. Yes. I had, well, a most remarkable experience. The old woman rolled her eyes, but her voice didn't show it. You don't say. I do. I was able to reconnect with someone. The only woman I ever really loved. She died a good deal of time ago. I don't need to hear the details, Mr. Sergeant. I'm familiar with these types of stories. I don't doubt it, the man said over the phone. I just wanted to say that you've a very special place there in rural Idaho. I am aware. A young man was on duty that night, and he spoke to me afterward. He was a very good listener. Bice didn't comment. Well, let me get right to the point in saying, I am not a well man. I've reached the end of my journey, and will be gone any day now. I'm sorry to hear that, Bice said, though she didn't know the man and felt no such thing. Thank you. I just wanted to share my appreciation for the experience I had this summer, and to do what I can to see it continue. The man was short of breath and spoke too slowly for her taste. Yes? The young man, 
a well-meaning sort, in his way both skinny and fat? Yes, I I know who you mean. Well, he told me I wasn't to breathe a word to anyone about my experience. Some kind of rule, perhaps. Something like that. But I thought I could speak to you about it, and about what an exceptional job the boy did that night. He does good work, Mrs. Bice admitted, to her own chagrin. He said that my experience is not uncommon on the premises, that people interact with those who have gone before as a matter of course. Bice made a non-committal sound. Mason probably shouldn't have told the man that. While it wasn't necessarily against the rules, it went against the spirit of the rules, which was to convince the guests to keep their mouths shut about what they saw, felt, or heard on the 2nd of July. The man continued over the phone. Well, I've written up some documents, and I am prepared to leave a substantial donation to your establishment on the event of my death. I want such a unique place preserved. As do we, Mr. Sergeant. I'm sure your donation will come in very useful. Ma'am, before I go, I want your assurance that this employee who assisted me... Mason Bradley, she told him, not unlike a curse in itself. Yes, Mason. I want him still to be working there. The next time this, shall we say, phenomenon occurs. Well, as far as it's in my power, he interrupted. I'd like to go to my rest, knowing the young man will be there to help the next visitor who has an encounter like I did. Mrs. Bice looked down at the phone, and her finger involuntarily moved toward the disconnect button. But she stopped herself. That sort of thing isn't always in my control, Mr. Sarge. Just give me your word, ma'am, and I'll have the paperwork delivered to you as soon as is possible. The old woman scowled at having been interrupted. Again. Yes, of course. Of course what? And then it occurred to Constance Bice that this might be something Mason had arranged hoping it would change her mind. She would not put it past the little shit. It was somewhat elaborate, this attempt to stave off his replacement slash firing. But Mason really did love his job. Mr. Sergeant, you can rest assured that Mason Bradley has a job here for as long as he wants one. He really is special, ma'am, the man said. And by his tone... She almost expected him to demand an agreement, or that she swear on her mother's eyes. Those awful eyes of hers. Oh, so I'm told. Well, I'll not take up any more of your time. It's limited as it is. Thank you for taking my call. Oh, it's no bother, Mr. Sergeant. You can expect a check from the estate upon the event of my death. It's much appreciated, sir. Thank the young man for me, the next time you see him. She did not comment on that. Instead, 
She was already reaching toward the end call button. Will you do that? he added. Oh, yes, she said, and went ahead and pushed the button. There had been something a little bit off about the whole conversation. Mrs. Bice came into the lobby and said to Lolly, Listen here, Miss McDaniel. Can you be on the lookout for an envelope from the Sargent estate in the next few days? The clerk nodded. Of course. She reached for the mail, already behind the counter. Like this one? There was a thick, white, legal-sized envelope there, and sure enough, it was from Badler and Associates, and said, Ingmar B. Sargent Family Trust on there. She picked up the envelope and took it with her. It included paperwork and a check. In the brief letter it came with, it explained that Mr. Sargent had passed away just that week and had left instructions that a sizable check be sent to Noble Oaks. Efficient. Okay. Well, there you go. That's where we're going to split it. I hope you feel like that's a good stopping point, or even if you don't feel that that's a good stopping point, I hope you understand. I thought that I would say a few words about Dengarzaprim. No, 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 no. About uh, ghosts right now. I have always had this fear of ghosts, and I have talked to other people that have absolutely no fear of them, and they say, you know, the, the ghosts are unrealistic threats. Even if you believe that there are malevolent ghosts, what can they do? And in my uh, mind, well, they can appear and upset you and drive you insane. And insanity is worse than death. But, you know, I've had people say that, well, you know, psychopaths are real. Murderers, that kind of thing, are real. Why are you not afraid of those? And maybe the answer is because I understand psychopaths? Um, I'll tell you what, there is a song that I hear on the radio from time to time with ghost in the title, and the last time I heard it, I, I wanted to change the station. I really, really did, but I, I didn't do it. And uh, I have this little sub-show called Rishon Records that I sometimes run, and uh, maybe I can sit down and do an episode about that song, and it can be tied in to this two-part episode. In the meantime, let's continue the show as it was uh, originally intended. Is that, is that what I'm asking? Let's continue the show already in progress. Uh, you know, the other day I, I was at my mom's place, and she was watching TV in her room, and I was I was in the hall. I, what was I doing? It doesn't matter. All that matters is that she was watching television and that there was a commercial playing and I, uh, I heard it. I didn't see the commercial. But what I heard was an elderly black lady talking to her son. And she mentions to her son, you know, I, I, the, I'm, I'm getting 
up there in years, son, and it's time that we had the talk about my funeral expenses. And what struck me was that the son didn't say, oh, mama, you'll be with us for a long, long time. Or, oh, mama, I, I don't want to talk about that. Or, or, you know, the natural question of, are you feeling all right, mama? Instead, the son said, well, all right, because it was a commercial. They didn't have time for the, the niceties or any of that stuff. But he goes, well, okay. And so she starts talking about this burial insurance that she has been paying into month to month for the past year or two so that the expenses won't fall upon the children. She's taken care of these things. And he's like, oh, mama, you're still taking care of us. And then, you know, it's like, call this number today. You know, um, my mom watches daytime television and all of the ads, or maybe it's uh, the networks that she watches, all of the ads are aimed toward a certain demographic, you know, the elderly. And uh, I, I think that those kind of commercials are ripe for parody. That's for sure. But I found this one to be just a little bit ghoulish in like the son's willingness to hear his mom out just because anytime my mom, like, like my mom got her current car in 2016 and she had said, you know, this is probably the last car I will ever get. And I was like, wow, really? They last that long, huh? And she's like, no, I just won't be around much longer. And I was just like, ooh, ooh, I don't want to talk about that, Ma. Now, of course, I'm a, you know, a wuss. And so maybe your tendency would be just like the son in the commercial that's like, yeah, let's talk about burying you, Mama. We, after all, we've got a commercial to make. But I just, I, I wanted to mention that for no, no other reason. Uh, it's not a setup for anything. Nope, nope, just, just making conversation, as you do. Okay, Rish Outfield from 2023 again. I haven't written a dead and breakfast story in a long time now. I believe that the last one I wrote was There'll Be Scary Ghost Stories, which was a Christmas story I wrote Christmas of 2021. That was the last time I caught up with our colorful cast of characters and that location in Idaho. Time it goes by really, really fast. And the, the thing that I always say, and I'll continue to say it because it's amazing, it's magical, is that if I ever decide to go back there, years and years will not have passed for those characters. It could be the next day for them. But to me, that's just astounding. I've been writing a story a, a Lara and the Witch story right now that takes place a little bit after the Valentine's Day story that I wrote, The People We Touch. It's been years since I wrote The People We Touch, and yet Lara is still in that same science class with the same students that were in that class. And she she's aged <laughs> two months. <laughs> Well, I've gotten all this gray in my... It's not even gray, it's white in my beard. It kind of 
makes you remember that life is precious. Anyhow, like I said earlier, uh, I'd like to put out a collection of Dead and Breakfast stories, and there are still a couple of them. There was a novel that I wrote and two other stories, one about Natalie and one of the Christmas one, that I never put out. If you are interested in them, if you would like to read them or hear them or buy the collection, remind me and I will do what I can to get it out there. And now a word from our sponsor. Son, I've been thinking. What about, Mama? About my funeral. Yeah, what about it? Did you know that burial expenses can cost up to $8,000? Oh no, Mama. There's no way Jacqueline and me can cover those expenses. What? No, that's not going to be a problem for a long, long time, Mama. Hey, you brought it up, not me. That's true. Well, anyway, I wouldn't want you and the other kids to worry. So I got a policy with Dengardaru Life. Dengardaru Life? What's that? It's a kind of burial insurance that I pay into every month. Really? I never heard of this before. That's why I'm bringing it up now. You sick, Mama? Not particularly. Taking a turn for the worse? No, I, I feel fine. But I've arranged for a payment to go to Dengardaru Life every month to take care of certain arrangements. Until you die, you mean? Then the payments stop? R right, and until I die. I pay into it so that we... How much are we talking about, Mama? Well, Dengardaru Life has policies for as little as $49.99 a month. Mine's a little more, but around there. And what's it cover? I was just getting to that. Upon my death, the costs of my preparation, my burial clothes, casket, and interment are all completely provided for, so my family doesn't have to pay a dime. Well, what about that thing where they suck out all your juices through this uh, drain type thing? Well, that's embalming, and... Yes, it too is covered. It takes care of all regular expected expenses, even the drive from the funeral home to the cemetery. What about the drive to the funeral home? Does it pay for that? I'm not sure. I'd have to look into it. Well, you'd better, Mama. This isn't much of a commercial if we have to pay to ship your body to Rob Broughton, soft as cotton, never forgotten mortuary. Oh, that reminds me. Dengardaru Life has coverage in every state save one. So there are many options for funeral homes that can make the arrangements necessary for... Except which one? Wh which one what? Which state do they not have funeral homes in? Idaho. Oh, okay. Well, that's fine then. Now, granted, some funerals will be more expensive than others. But I've told them how I want to be buried, the songs, the flowers, and picked out a casket that I could be comfortable in. And was it a cheap one? It doesn't matter, son. It's all taken care of. 
And what if we want to have you cremated? Would we get some of that back? Oh, uh, I don't think it works that way. It's called burial insurance for a reason. Well, could you ask at least? Um, yes, I suppose. Anyway, Dangarzaru life covers these things so the next of kin won't have to worry itself with those kind of manners. And upon my passing, you and the others can get the check promptly so that you can start moving on with your life. How long, Mum? What? How long? Well, generally, you, you can get the check in just a few days. How many days? Um, it says here, 6 to 11. Huh. Well, I guess that's all right. I hope it is. Other burial insurance companies can make you wait weeks or even months before coverage begins. And do you have to pay for a while before you qualify? What do you mean? I mean, let's say you kick the bucket next Tuesday. Have you paid enough into it that all the expenses are taken care of then? Next Tuesday? Why next Tuesday? No reason. Just asking. Huh. That's my anniversary. It's just a random day, Mama. Well, okay, you, you do have to pay into it for at least six months before coverage begins. But once that threshold is crossed... How long have you been paying in? Son, that, that's... I'm not sure I'm comfortable answering that question. Why not? I'm only curious. I've been paying for a while now. Look, it's the 15th today. So let's say you take a bad step and fall down a flight of stairs a month from now. And they are those harsh industrial cement stairs like they have in buildings under construction. Would everything be covered then? Young man, what would I be doing at a construction site? Just answer the question. Like the building they're putting up over at 3rd and White Avenue? No, not that one. That one's almost finished. How about the one on Moretto Terrace? Oh, that's a very nice neighborhood. I... Huh? Would you like to go there? Take a look around? What? No, I, I'm fine right here. Thank you very much. Huh. Lots of stairs around here, too, Mama. What did you say? I said you sure were considerate getting a policy with Dangardaru life, Mama. Well, yes. I've been thinking a lot of... You always did think of others first, Mama. You mean I always do think of others, don't you? Same thing, Mama. Same thing. I'm glad we have this little talk. Well, I, uh, no problem, son. I, uh... Thanks, Dengardaroo life. And thank you, Mama. Right. I, uh, sure do appreciate you coming round, but I think I need to rest now. Feeling pretty sick, are you? No, just tired. Oh, okay, that's good. See you later, Mama. Uh, right. Ask your funeral director about Dengardaru life today. Coverage available at all A.H. Lee Coffin and Crematoriums in the Tri-State area. 
I don't know how many stories like this I'm going to write. Um, but so far, I think we're at nine or ten, and it's it's fun, and uh, you know, creation of art should be fun. It, it isn't all the time. Sometimes it can be heartbreaking. Sometimes it can be headache-inducing. Sometimes it can be frustrating. Sometimes it can be work. But since I'm not getting paid a lot for this, some of the compensation is that this is fun. So anyhow, I hope that you have enjoyed this story. And I hope that you don't resent me for having shared it with you. Probably one day I will just put out all of these as episodes of The Outcast. Why not? And if you don't like them, well, I, I don't know what to say about that. Except for, you know, I'm going to keep trying, and maybe you'll like the next one, right? Ed Wood, worst movie you ever saw, huh? Well, the next one will be better. This has been Rish Outfield. Thanks again for listening. Thanks for supporting me if you support me on Patreon. And uh, find somebody that means something to you. And never let them go. Good night. This podcast has been produced under a Creative Commons attribution, no derivatives 3.0 license, granting you full access to download, share the file, listen, and delete the bugger. But you can't claim the files as your own or try to make money off them. The music therein provided by Kevin McLeod of Incompetech.com, was also under a Creative Commons license. If, unlike me, you enjoy the show and would like to help it continue, please visit www.patreon.com forward slash Rish Outfield to donate a dollar and up an episode and bring Rish Outfield back from the brink of despair. As usual, the kind, decent, generous lover, Gino, uh, 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 generous platonic friend, Gino Moretto, has provided the logo for this podcast. Please see it in your heart to forgive him. I'm in high school now, he said. Though she should have guessed, what with him having a driver's license and all. He doesn't have a driver's license. I'm getting really, really, really bored. Sorry. I, I wouldn't hurt the poor, pooty little critter more than I'd scalp a baby. And you may bet your variegated socks on that. And you may bet your variegated socks on that. See, I'll drop it fur away on the outside so not, so not as goat. God damn it. I'll drop it fur away on the outside so Nas to go, so as not to go, so as not to go near her. I'll drop it fur away on the outside so not to go, <laughs> so not to go. I'll drop it fur away on the outside so not to go near her. Thus saying, he leaned over and held his arm out at a full length and held his arm out at full length and dropped the stone. Everybody loves to murder. And God is what I've called you for. Did I remember to sign the checks? Everybody loves to murder, yeah. 
You know it's true. It's very sad for me and you. But murder is fun. Murder is good. Murder, murder, murder. I put it in backwards, didn't I? Okay, F you. <laughs>